you oh, can, right. You can intro- oh, no, should we do the clap? Yes. Second clap of the day. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds really dirty. <laughs> no. I don't know why. <laughs> Every time we say it, I'm like, it sounds weird. <sighs> okay. Three, <laughs> two, one. <laughs> Welcome to First Aid Lit. <laughs> this is definitely our first attempt at recording this podcast episode. Oh no. Yeah, we should explain. Um, yeah, we had some tech issues with the first attempt to record this um, theme, which we're going to talk about in a moment. So this is technically the second time we've done it, but it just means we're going to be incredibly well-versed in the books that I, we're talking about. I like to think so. Um, so it's all going to be good. Hey, what is, what is First Aid Lit? Um, so First Aid Lit is a podcast that explores and promotes the life-changing, life-saving power of literature. Changing and saving. So we uh, pick a theme for each episode and then discuss the books that we would recommend or suggest to help us survive in a given situation. Who hosts it? I totally forgot to say that I'm Angela Wifferman. <laughs> and I'm Nicola Sheppey. Um, and, and that's it. That's all we need to know. I'm already exhausted. I know. Um, I know. We're, we're acting like we're drunk and it's like, oh, we're just really, it's a very hot room. It's very hot. We, we should mention we are still excited to be recording in person once again. We're able to look at each other and not yeah. for a screen. Which means that hopefully the tech will be even better. Who knows? Have you been reading anything interesting the I, last week or so? Yeah, I want to talk about a book that I just finished. It is Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro. Have you read it? I have definitely read it. And I, I have, have seen the film. Yeah. We can talk about it in Adaptation Station. Yes, we can. Well, so, I mean, just to introduce it, it was published in 2005. It was shortlisted for the Booker. Um, it's told from the first person of a woman named Kathy, and uh, she is talking about her experience growing up in an orphanage or some kind of care home, uh, and the friends that she made there, and kind of their, I guess, kind of like Bildung's Roman style from them from being very young to uh, being young adults. You get the sense quite early on that it's not quite a normal orphanage, mm-hmm. and I won't say any more because I think it's it's such an interesting concept. I kind of don't want to. You don't want to go into it knowing any of it. That said, I did actually know the concept going in because I've seen the film, so it was probably I didn't read it with the same fresh eye as I'd like to have done. But I absolutely loved it. I read it in like two days. It was yeah, race through it. That book is if that book was a genre. That would be like my favourite genre. Like I like when it's a. Oh no! I know what you oh, mean. Oh no! I was going to say something, but the saying the thing might even be a spoiler in itself. Oh no! Don't say it. Okay, well I'm going to tell you what I was going to say, and then you can tell me if we can use okay. it. Okay. So I'll just say it. Okay. And then I'll just cut it if you think it's too much to spoil it. So what I was going to say is that I like when it's a science fiction concept, but delivered in a very real world contemporary setting. I think you can say that. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, because keep it, it says that on the back, I think. Oh, okay. okay. Fine. <laughs> I love how cleverly it does that, where it just feels like this world, but something's a bit different. Yeah, there is, I guess it's kind of like speculative fiction yeah. as well, this kind of like idea that's been spoken about a bit, put in a very literal way. Mm. But yeah, it is, it is in this, it's actually a very sweet story about an English town, and the yeah. fact it's got this kind of underlying sci fi element to it is very interesting. That is not a spoiler. <laughs> Uh, have you been reading anything good? Yeah, so I read recently a book called Love and Other Thought Experiments, which is by Sophie Ward. I read it because it was long listed for the Booker this year, the, book, mm. the 2020 Booker. 
and it just sounded quite interesting. So it is, it's a novel, but it's made up of a series of kind of short vignettes or short stories about um, a group of interlinked people. But one of the strangest stories, which is vital to understanding the rest of them, is that an ant crawls through one of the women in the story's eyes <gasps> and um, lives in her brain. And they kind of live in this kind of symbiotic relationship and you get a whole story from the ant's point of view. Um, and as a whole, the book is it's discussing philosophical concepts, but through little fictional stories. So she has, I want to say, ten... There are like 10 famous thought experiments and then she explores those thought experiments through these fictional stories. So it's a very cool idea. Um, Can you give me an example of one? Uh, yes. Of what the experiment is? You don't have to say what the story is. What's an example of one? Oh, one that's quite well known is The Prisoner's Dilemma. The sort of experiment is if you have two prisoners that have committed a crime together, they're both arrested and they're taken to different rooms and each one is offered the same deal. You will, if you admit, if you both admit your guilt, you get a very long sentence. If one of you admits your guilt and the other one doesn't... Like the climax of Love Island. <laughs> yeah. Oh, is it? I don't know. I don't well, they do mind. a thing at the end where they're like, you you get the prize money, but you have to say whether or not to take it or split it. Oh, okay. It's going to be the same. That's going to be yeah. almost certainly it. Yeah. Sorry, but you were saying your one. Well, I'm just going to... I'm going <laughs> to find someone else's description because I'm not going <laughs> to... Also, um, have you seen The Dark Knight? They do like a similar sort of thing where it's yeah. like the, pri- the boat of prisoners and the boat of... Crim- oh, sorry, the boat of criminals and the boat of normal people, and it's like mm. they can choose to kill the other, but if they, if neither of them kills the other, they both die, or so I can't remember. Yeah, prisoner's dilemma, so you have two prisoners, A and B. If A and B betray each other, so accuse the other one and say, I didn't do it, the other one did. If both of them betray the, each other, they both serve two years in prison. If A betrays B, but B says nothing, A, A goes free, B gets three years in prison. If A says nothing, but B says it was A, the opposite happens. A serves three years and B goes three. And if both prisoners say nothing, both of them will only serve one year. Ah. So the idea is that the best option is to both remain silent. Yeah. So although you end up doing one year of prison, it's better than risking you dobbing someone else in and getting yeah. more time. Can I can I explain the Love Island version? Yeah. <laughs> Where it's, um, I think it's, so if it's the couple at the end win and then they get given, they have to either choose to either take the money or split the money. And if one person says take, the other one says split, yeah. the taker gets it, okay? yeah. If one person said, if they both say take, neither of them get it, I think. And if they both say split, obviously they split it. However, it's boring because none of them ever do anything other than split it. Because they know that to, if you say take, you'll look like such an asshole yeah. and your whole career is ruined. I mean, I think I've got that right. I've only watched like one series, but but I remember being like, damn it, I want some drama at the end. But they try and do that basically, but it just fails. Yeah. That's just one example of the thought experiment she uses. And then, so for like that it. one, she, ends, she then tells this story about two boys and a football floats out to sea and the boys have to decide whether to help each other or not in terms of oh. getting this football. So yeah, it's, it's a really cool concept. It's really different. And I think it was an interesting read. I think... I think because of the setup and the way it's written, I, I struggled sometimes to like, feel quite close to the characters. Mm. But there were definitely moments where like, there were these really emotional moments. Um, but I think it's definitely, it's one I probably wouldn't have read if it didn't pop up on the booker. I think yeah. that prompted me to try uh, yeah, it out. Yeah, I've heard of it, but I'd never, I don't think I would have read it. Yeah. Until, but now I really want to. Yeah, it's, it's, quite, really it's a very quick read as well. Like It's quite short. And as I say, it's a new like, little chunk, so you can kind of pick it up and drop it as, as and when. Nice. But yeah, that's, that's 
been reading. Mm. Um, Have we got anything for Adaptation Station? Well, we could t- touch on the um, Never Let Me Go adaptation, even though it's not a modern... Yeah, um, that's true. Of... I do also want to talk about the Rebecca trailer. Oh, God, yeah. Seen it. I have um, seen it. You haven't read... Have you read Rebecca? No, but... You've talked about I'm it before, so. annoyed about it. <laughs> well, I'm not annoyed. I think there is a certain level of... It's It's not really... It doesn't look like it's going to be the right kind of film. Because mm. it's like... Yeah, the whole point of Rebecca is this very like young, meek, plain, timid woman. And this very older, aloof man. Mm. So to have Lily James and Armie Hammer, who are both really attractive and look really cool in the trailer and are like around the same age I would have thought mm. just doesn't look right to me I mean, I mean she seems to be a bit younger than him but if, if it's meant yeah. to be very obvious that they've got this big age gap well he's quite like an odd not. I think he's quite an odd age because the only other thing I've really seen him in is Call Me By Your Name where he's playing a 24 year old yes. but he looks to me about 35 and that, that really irritated me about that adaptation it was it was a strange choice I, yeah. I thought he was good but the age dynamic seemed yeah. really off they're meant that. to be much closer in age yeah it, it looked a age. bit creepy yeah. in the actual film I do love that film though that's not that for adaptation station i haven't read the book but yeah i'm o- i'm okay with them remaking rebecca but i don't think it looks mm. quite right but sometimes trailers aren't truly reflective because they're trying to like get you hooked true but you know a trailer is it's like you know the first few pages of the book or whatever well it it's gonna go to you. netflix as well so i mean it'd be quite easy to mm. watch once it's out but don't know yeah. how i feel about it yet. i just i really love rebecca the book so we'll see I can't think of any other adaptations I've seen. As of late. No, mm. me neither. Should we go on to the theme? Yes. Theme for today is Haunted House. Ooh. So we're going to imagine we are going on a trip to stay in a haunted house. And what literary preparation would we do? What books would we bring that might help us prepare for our spooky stay? Can I tell my haunted hotel story? You can. It sounds like it's going to be a really good story, but it's not. But last time, the first time we recorded this, the dead version of the the ghost version of this episode, which has just gone, has died and become a ghost. We asked each other if we'd ever stayed in a haunted house. And I told my story about one time I stayed in a haunted hotel. And basically I was working at a company where we used to do a lot of trips to the USA. And I used to be in charge of booking our hotels and stuff. And one hotel we booked in, I started getting lots of panicked emails being like, Nicola, can you Google this hotel, please? So I Googled it and it kept showing up on uh, America's most haunted hotels. It was something to do with the Alamo. It was in San Antonio in Texas. I can't remember the name of the hotel. It wasn't, I mean, it was a lovely hotel. It it didn't have a vibe. It wasn't like staying in a haunted house. (laughs) What really annoyed me about the whole thing were when I read up America's most haunted Mm. hotels, there were two things that they said made it haunted and the first one was that the elevator doors would open and close which sounds to me like it's probably just a dodgy elevator and the second one or lift as we should say the second one was uh that you could hear horses hooves going around at night and again we were in an area where horses were on the road because they'd have those like those like tourist horse and carriages i personally did not have any go some of my colleagues did have some ghostly experiences I'm not sure. And they were very much, well, you know, if you if you believe in the occult and all that, then the ghosts will come to you. But I don't believe it. That's, basically, that's the long and short of my haunted hotel story. Nothing happened. It was a very boring story. So I wouldn't have needed my first aid kit in this situation. <laughs> I have not had a haunted experience. I mean, yeah. like, hopefully one doesn't happen. 
You could go on one of these, um, what they call these little trips where you go and stay in a haunted house. Yeah, they do that, don't they? Or like doing haunted walks and haunted this and haunted that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm a bit of a, what's the word? Like, I don't particularly believe in ghosts. Not particularly. I don't. I don't believe in ghosts. (laughs) But I also have a very active imagination. Yeah. So I will lie in my bed and if I hear a weird noise, I'll be like probably something scary yeah um, but i remember we talked about this last time because yeah. this is where we differ where i have to go and see what the noise oh, is yeah. i have to rationalize it in my head i'm like if it was a stray cat or something i need to know so i've got to go and investigate the noise and that is how you die that is in how the you movie die. that is how you get killed. like just don't go and explore no one in a scary movie no one just stays in bed and puts a cover over it actually maybe they do sometimes they do yeah do you know what always gets me is like I hate having showers in showers with shower curtains. Oh. And I've not actually seen Psycho, which I know is the film with the famous scene. I've not yeah. actually ever seen that. Oh, the other one that happens in is a Shining, isn't it, as well? There's a sort of shower curtain scene. There's a bath scene. thing, yeah, where she's yeah. got a shower curtain. But it's yeah. just something about, if it's a shower curtain rather than a shower door, I can always just imagine there's someone on the other side and I'm going to whip the shower curtain. Oh, interesting. And it's going to be like a scary clown. <laughs> In my bathroom. <laughs> or an old lady, apparently, and we go by the shining. And I also room. just think part of that as well is that I don't want to be fighting off a masked invader whilst I'm naked. Yeah, that's like a vulnerable <laughs> element. See, I get more scared that um I don't know if it's the grudge or there's some film where they're washing their hair and then the hands start coming oh. out the back of their head. And that's showers are very scary. Yes. My biggest fear as a child was that I'd be in the shower and we'd have a power cut. And I don't know whether I do that because my house I grew up in was in like Berkshire and it was just it would have been pitch black and if I was like, if I was in the house on my own at night in the shower and then we had a power cut that would have been my absolute hell <laughs> even thinking about it now makes me feel uh, I don't really watch scary movies because it's just a recipe for sleepless oh, nights so even though I'm an adult yeah but I do remember once for some bizarre reason when I was like I don't know 14 like my parents went out for the night and I was on my own and I watched the Blair Witch Project oh why why, <laughs> why did I do that but honestly I got I got 10 minutes in and I was like I'm done they hadn't even got to the forest yet they were packing the, the bat the car or something and I was like no to be fair, it it's not too scary in terms of like imagery. There are mm-hmm. it's more the whole thing is unsettling. Yeah. So I think you probably would have been okay. But I think that's scarier. Like the Saw films, you can see the scary thing. Yeah. Is to me less scary than the sort of more psychological the unknown thing mm, that is like true. messing with you. Which does bring me nice into my first book recommendation. Yeah, take it um, in. Which is, well, the, the, the first book I would pack in preparation, or if I was sending someone else off for this adventure, because mm. I wouldn't go to a haunted house, <laughs> is The Little Stranger by Sarah Waters. Yes. So as a brief summary, The Little Stranger, which was published in 2009, is a story I about... I forget that it's so recent. It, yeah, it mm. is. But I think, well, f- as I'll explain, it is a contemporary novel, but it's set in the post in post-war Britain, so post-World War II. It, though it's a contemporary novel, I think it sort of, it feels very of the time it's in yeah um so yeah it's about a country doctor dr faraday who becomes involved with a declining aristocratic family which is made up of a mum an adult daughter and an adult son and the son lives with some mental and physical health issues because of his um time in the war in world war ii and also other whilst the doctor's there kind of treating the son and the family strange things start to happen in the house there are strange noises these sort of childlike drawings appear on the walls and as the story progresses, things start happening to the inhabitants of the house. And 
you sort of start to wonder if all these things that are happening are truly happening or are they in the minds of these this aristocratic family who kind of are living with the strains and stresses of keeping up an old house that's that's the storyline like quite a classic haunted house ghost story um to kick us off the reason that I think this would be useful is because it is a reminder that, that, that scary things start to happen to you, that it's not necessarily something scary and that you know it might be that, that the things around you are more to do with your own insecurities and that could potentially help you manage your fear of the things that are happening. But I think in terms of the book itself as well, it's hugely atmospheric. I think you really feel every moment and every twist and turn is very spookily written. Yeah, maybe not one to read in the dark if you are mm. an easily scared person. But because we talked about this last time, for some reason I just didn't connect to it yeah, in the same yeah. way. And I still don't know why. I'd like. I do want to give it another go after hearing you speak about it. But it is quite a slow burner. It's quite a slow burner. And I think one of the things that some people have said in reviews about it is that the, the person telling the story, which who's Dr. Faraday, he's quite a sort of blank personality. He doesn't really do very much. He's quite passive. It's more seeing the family and the strange events through his eyes. He's also very... He, he doesn't believe in the paranormal or anything like that. So he's kind of always offering in the dialogue he has with himself you know his, his interior dialogue he's offering up reasons why these things are happening and being like well obviously it's this and obviously it's, it's the stress and obviously it's that so he kind of acts as a bit of a proxy for us as well of kind of like rationalizing all the things that are happening but yeah he can be i think he's quite a sort of blank protagonist to see the story through but i read an interview with sarah waters where she said that that was something that she had that she sort of did on purpose mm. um, and that she purposefully had a character that you could put yourself onto and you could inhabit that body but I guess yeah maybe it kind of works for some people and less for others there's something quite almost cruel about giving a character putting a character who's very rational and scientific into a fantasy world where yeah. these ghosts exist have you seen the film The Witch it's like a New England folklore oh, okay. kind of story but it's one of those things where it takes the concept of witches and everything being real and these mm. horrible thing, horrifying things existing, but it tries to also have that rationalisation on yeah. it as well as being like, well, you know, it's just their paranoia. They're just being... But then you think, well, if you're in a fictional world where it does exist, does that kind of lessen the impact of the so mm. like a rational mind for example we might read it and think that's what we think in that scenario because we live in a world where as we both believe ghosts don't exist yeah so is it a bit cruel in a way to put this character in a world where they do exist yeah and it's interesting that you mentioned like that paranoia is the paranoia is driving people to perhaps see things on there because that sort of is a theme in um the little stranger as well so Again, in, in an interview that Sarah Waters gave, she talked about how she wanted to explore the sort of paranoia among the kind of aristocracy and the upper classes in the post-war era, because in, in, you know, in Britain, there was the end of this era where wealthy families had these big houses and all these servants because it, it was costing more and more to, to pay people to be servants, quite rightly, because they had not been paid much before and it's costly to keep up these houses and the war had cost the country a lot so people were being taxed more and 
So basically, you know, you having the downfall of the aristocracy as it was once was in the country and that class boundaries were blurring and there was no longer, you know, you couldn't lord it over working class folk in the village anymore. So yes, I just want to kind of explore the paranoia that upper classes might have had about all of these changes and their loss of power and that this paranoia was would manifest itself in the mm. sort of unsettling events that happen in the house yeah it's as you go through the story and these things happen you kind of wonder if there's this poltergeist and this poltergeist actually is kind of perhaps representative of of their own fears of what the world is going to do to them now that they have lost their power very interesting metaphor i think yeah but i think it comes back and we we spoke about this and i know we're going to keep talking about the ghost version of this episode i like to think of it as that but a lot of the times in these books, the ghosts are metaphors for something yeah. else. They're never just specifically about ghosts. Yeah. I feel like this might be something you were going to touch on more later. Yeah. Based on the ghost episode. But I think that in real life, the the noises and the things we hear happen because we feel insecure. You know, like when you're lying in your bed and a strange noise happens, if you're on your own, you might be more like... Scared well, it's the vulnerability with someone. Very true. Yeah. It's the thing of you know if you're if you're in the shower by yourself and you're naked. Yeah. <laughs> and rarely does a ghost story happen in like you know a flat in London. A ghost story happens in the spooky house in the middle of nowhere. Mm. So you're you know you, you're you're kind of hyping up these feelings of insecurity and vulnerability. Um, I do think as well. I think that feeds into ideas about when people say they see. Or when people stay in haunted houses or haunted hotels, mm. they tend to be very historical ghosts. Yeah. I don't know if that's reflective of people's attitudes towards the kind of the most unknown scary thing they can think of are people from a whole different time period. No one ever stays in a haunted house and there's a ghost from 2009. It's always yeah, from yeah. 1900 or the Victorian era. It's that thing of like, oh, they're so like far removed yeah. from me. So and maybe... Except for in the sixth sense. Yeah. I mean, films and TV, it gets a bit more mixed up I'd say but in terms of like real life like when people believe they're going to haunted house they're always wearing like creepy Victorian outfits they're not wearing tracksuit pants yeah they're not wearing like I don't know naughty's fashion massive voice belt (laughs) (laughs) I don't know I think that feeds into my second book what you were saying about um, the ghosts being Mm. metaphors and things because my first book is The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson so to introduce it it was published in 1959 follows uh, a group of people it's kind of this man named dr montague who oh, is a doctor isn't there mm. um he invites three people to stay with him in a haunted house as part of an experiment so we're mainly with the character eleanor who's this young woman she's lived a very sheltered life uh, and she's had a lot of childhood experiences with poltergeists so that's kind of why she's brought into the scenario and once she gets to the house she has a pretty sinister time as you'd imagine it was also you know going back to adaptation station it was mm-hmm. recently adapted into a netflix show a few years ago i mean it's very loose adaptation it's more of a inspiration, inspiration point, I'd say. Yeah. and the character names are quite similar but it is a really really good show it's like a the quality of like a good Netflix family drama, but then also genuinely terrifying. So you might have seen that. And if you have, you can still read the book and um, have the same experience because absolutely nothing similar happens in the book and the TV show. In terms of why it's in my first aid kit. So the first reason is 
the importance of having friends with you. As we were saying, it's about when you're on your own, you're so much more vulnerable to your imagination going wild. Whereas the the thing I really like about this book is whenever they're all together and something scary is happening, they break the tension, they make jokes about it, they yeah. get drunk. And the second reason is a quote that I'm going to read out. Uh, so it's a, uh, something that Dr. Montague says. No physical danger exists, the doctor said positively. No ghost in all the long history of ghosts has ever hurt anyone physically. The only damage done is by the victim to himself, end quote. So I think that's good to remember. Ghosts don't actually hurt you in most of these stories. The only danger is your own mind and sanity. So if you keep a cool head, I think you would get by. In a, and that's why I think I'd, I'd bring it along. I think that it's good to remember that, you know, that obviously some sinister things do happen in the house. Uh, and I would argue that probably they are much less to do with the ghosts mm. than they are to do with their own psychology. Uh, but the reason why I thought about the ghost being a metaphor was a writer called Ruth Franklin uh, wrote a biography of Shirley Jackson. Uh, and I was reading this, uh, the Guardian review of it. And so the biography is called A Rather Haunted Life. And it basically talks about how Jackson's interest in all these kind of occult and um, horror and mm. things were metaphors for exploring power and disempowerment. I think she had quite a difficult life. And then there, there is a quote from the review that says, the demons in Jackson's fiction might be social, as in the lottery, or they might be personal and psychological, as in the haunting of Hill House. And I thought, oh, it's kind of interesting, the idea that these ghosts are metaphors for disempowerment and things. Mm. And yeah, it comes back to what we always say about these books, that scary or weird things always tend to be metaphors for something else, mm. as is in The um, Little Stranger as well. Is Have you read it? it? Did you say you've read it? I've read The Haunting of Hill House. Yeah. yeah. And I've also read The Lottery, which is a yeah, um, famous did. short story. I, I'm a big fan of Shirley Jackson because she is a master at being unsettling mm. and I remember reading her short story collection which has the lottery in it which I'm pretty sure is called The Lottery and every single one of her stories is just like it's always just something's a bit off I mean the lottery is very obvious what's off but even in the other short stories in that collection it's always like there's something very normal happening and yet something isn't quite right you don't always work out what it is so there's um, a story where a woman it's a woman and she loses her pocketbook, which I think is just like a little handbag. That's like an old-fashioned American term for a small handbag. So she like loses her handbag. And that's kind of all that happens in the story. But she sort of starts to unravel. Her life kind of unravels before her eyes because she's lost a handbag. And it's, oh I don't know, it's all just really very unsettling. Nowadays, it's like losing your phone. And yeah. <laughs> the descent is your madness. So yeah, I think she's a master at kind of creating that sort of slightly disturbing atmosphere while not really doing anything dramatic. And I feel like... In the haunting house, are the events that happen very dramatic, or are they more subtle? And it's... Uh, I think they are more subtle. It's not. It definitely has its climactic moments. Yeah, big. And I think it's interesting that I think in the TV show they do again a, a good job of showing off the psychological of it. But I think they do make the ghosts also very real and very much impacting the characters' mm. states of mind, which I guess does kind of happen as well to an extent in the book. But I think it's it is more this idea of experiencing these things through your own psychology and mm. not physically and I always think you know when you think about like sleep paralysis for example that's something that a lot of people equate to like having ghost experiences this idea that you're waking up and you can't move and you're seeing figures around yeah. the room and whereas in reality it is still your own psychology but it's your own reaction to your own psychology yeah. as well that makes it frightening I've actually had sleep paralysis a few times I've never actually I've Have never been you? frightened and because it's never a scary thing mostly it's my friends like prodding me or something or and I'm like get off but I can't move 
so it's never so where some people really interpret it as being like these horrifying yeah scary things. i've heard it being because I've, I've never had it oh yeah but yeah all the stories i've heard about it have been like that it's scary there's like there's someone like a demon in the yeah room. i've heard a lot of things like that yeah. whereas mine have always been very funny than anything else is <laughs> what i remember having it one time because a big thing of sleep paralysis is footsteps so you hear oh. footsteps walking around and uh, or you hear footsteps coming towards you Neighbours are slamming doors. Don't know if you can hear that. It's a poltergeist. Yeah. Oh my god! It's the sleep paralysis demon. And I remember my funniest one was when I, I heard my friend coming up the stairs mm. and coming to my room and coming towards me, and I was like, "No, go away!" But obviously I couldn't speak. I was like frozen. But and then as soon as she got to the bed, I, I sort of came out of it and woke up. Yeah. But I think it is, you know, people interpret those as ghost experiences when they when yeah. they've been frightened by them yeah. as opposed to just being like I'm obviously still dreaming yeah your mind jumps to or you sort of know you're still dreaming so you know you know it's not you, you know it's mm. not real you're not like oh, I'm about to be attacked you're just frustrated because yeah. like, I can't move and I'm still dreaming and yeah I don't know, yeah. I don't know how I got on that but... <laughs> I feel as often in scary stories that the characters that kind of commune with ghosts or experience ghosts have something about them which makes them more able to cross the barrier between life and death and I feel like is it the case I'm trying to remember in Haunting of Hill House does she is there something about her trauma or something which enables her to she's had some experience when she was a child yeah. that enables her to communicate well, or something I think all three of the people he invites mm. have had experiences that ghosts and poltergeists that yeah I mean mm. so it could be a metaphor for like past trauma but I don't know if it's ex- I think it's pretty explicit in the text that it's like oh you've you've hung out with ghosts before therefore you might be able to see the ones again which they can mm. it's quite upsetting so you do get the sense that she has had quite a difficult life but uh, I don't know if it's seen as aiding her in the haunting kind okay, of way yeah. whereas I think in the TV show they do a really good job of that of being like your ghosts are or you'll go, you have your own ghosts mm. of trauma alongside your, the physical ghosts that are coming around your house. Yeah. Which is very frightening. Yeah. So your take your take home message from that is just don't go alone. Yeah. And just keep keep a cool head is the, the takeaway. I always feel like modern scary movies, it's always like the friends go off to stay together in a cabin and they always get picked off one by one. That is true. So maybe if you have enough friends event you'll be the but one then that's when they split up as well that if we go into the weird behaviors it's like stay together <laughs> and get drunk yeah 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 because <laughs> that's what i did like about the book whenever something scary started happening their immediate reaction was to go to each other so they were staying cocktail. in like adjacent rooms and they'd run into each other's rooms and start like <laughs> and that's exactly what yeah you do. that's a sensible that is a sensible approach. yeah and uh and it was all constant it's kind of like reassuring each other this thing of like i'm only yeah. over here i'm only down the hall i'm only you know it's so yeah there's no away. way i'm going off to investigate the noise i on my would own. not even stay in a room by myself <laughs> there is a very scary bit though oh i'm gonna say it. i don't think it's a real spoiler where um there's two women sharing a room and something scary happens and they start holding hands and they start freaking out. And then when they kind of come out of the scary spell, one of them's like, I wasn't holding your hand. And the other one's like, oh, and oh that really uh, frightened me. Ooh. That's horrible. Yeah. Now uh. you're going to read that bit and then no, but I'm sure you remember it from reading it. So I, for my, my second option. Oh yes. I have gone for something like slightly different. Um, so I would pack Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Oh. So, so Jane Eyre is by Charlotte Bronte. It is a book that was published, haven't prepared that date. Who knows when it was published? <laughs> Sometime in the 19th century. Yeah. Um, 
we'll just cut maybe that bit slightly out. off maybe more okay let's just find out and then I can yeah. then it's in it's in the podcast that, Jane Eyre is Eyre it that's like after Victorian back to actually podcasting that I, bet I won't cut out I'll start again <laughs> so Jane Eyre is published in 1847 and it follows the story of Jane Eyre who is a young orphan is initially sent away she's an orphan so she's sent to live with her aunt and uncle she gets sent away to school because they don't love her and the cousin her cousin's very mean to her and they sort of just want her out of the house and they also sort of say that Jane is is there's something bad about Jane there's something evil about her and generally they're all just not very nice to her Anyway, after she leaves school, she goes and becomes a governess for uh, Mr. Rochester. And she works in his house looking for after his niece. But during her time in the house, there are strange noises, strange bumps in the night, and the staff all act a little bit strange as well. So there's lots of odd things going on for Jane, and it's all very spooky, it's all very unsettling. And ultimately, I think I think it's okay to do spoilers for a book that was published in yeah, I think everybody knows. Um, so yeah, the dramatic twist is that all the noises are not ghosts and not ghouls. It is actually a mad wife in the attic. So Mr. Rochester's first wife is crazy, and so she's been chained up in the attic, and he failed to mention that when he hired her for the role. And wow, yeah, big thing to fail to mention. So Jane, I should add, has by this point in the story, when she finds out about the mad wife in the attic, she's fallen in love with Mr. Rochester, but of course she can't marry him, he's already married. But conveniently, the house burns down and Bertha, the mad wife, dies. So Jane Eyre can marry Mr. Rochester and everyone is happily ever after. (laughs) That is very convenient. Very convenient. Is it implied that that happened by accident? Um, So yeah, what they think happened is that Bertha, the mad wife, knocked over a candle. Oh. And the house burned down with her in it. <laughs> Mad women be knocking over candles. What yeah. can you do? So, yes. The reason I would include it in my first aid kit is to remind myself if I'm going on this adventure that if strange things do start to happen, actually it might not be ghosts and ghouls. There might be a perfectly reasonable explanation. Equally terrifying explanation. Yeah, yeah. equally terrifying, but logical. Uh, uh, I mean, This isn't yeah. a good time to mention that I have a very big attic just above <laughs> But yeah, I so told you my housemate was out of town. Oh God. Um, it, it, it sort of is, has elements of sort of ghost, ghost story tropes in it. But um, yeah, of course it turns out that it's not a ghost at all. It's, it's a classic of, of English language literature. It's definitely one just to read for that purpose yeah um, but i think it also throws up lots of really interesting points about women in, in 19th century society and the expectations around women and also what you would do with difficult women who were inverted commas mad and yeah when i was sort of thinking about jane eyre and thinking about literature of the time i i remembered the yellow wallpaper which mm. i think a lot of people read in school that's when i first read it mm. which is by an American author, Charlotte Perkins Gilmore. And it is about a woman who starts, she sort of is forced to go on bed rest. She, I can't remember why she goes on bed rest, actually. She's ill. related to hysteria? His, yeah, I think she has hysteria. She's yeah. being, she's sort of stressed out, essentially. And they're like, you know, the only way to, can't, to calm yourself down and to get well is to have no stimulation whatsoever. Mm. So you just have to lie in this room and just have food brought to you and you just lie in your bed. Um, and this woman in the story, as a short story, becomes kind of obsessed with the yellow wallpaper and she thinks there's a woman in the yellow wallpaper. 
And the author, Charlotte Perkins Gilmore, she kind of wrote it as a direct response to her own experience of having of being forced to do this kind of bed rest. And she said that she felt like she was going mad. Like she mm. had no stimulation. She wasn't allowed to read. She wasn't allowed to write. And yeah, she felt herself going mad. And eventually she was able to say, no, I'm not going. I need to get up. I need to go out. And so she didn't, in the end, go mm. crazy like the character in the short story. But I think it is the sort of mad woman in Victorian literature is is a bit of a trope and I, I wonder how much of that is yeah down to women feeling trapped and the 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 sort of ghosts and the ghouls of their imagination are again like like manifestations of mm. fears and um, anxieties about a life that you can't control yeah I mean the with the yellow wallpaper I, I very much interpret it as the woman in the wallpaper is her, and the wallpaper is like the metaphor for her tr- entrapment. Mm. So it's interesting because I know we we spoke about this on the on the ghost episode, the the unreleased episode, where the fact that the ghosts are often women and mm. what that means, but whether female ghosts represent anything. Or... Mm. I re- remember you saying maybe there's something in the fact that women and children, yes, in the real world are quite unthreatening not scary yeah so kind of making they become more scary when presented as demonic because it's sort of twisting our perception so much yeah no i think there's something in that i mean that was my own (laughs) as you repeated my my own thought back to me i'm like yeah i'm sure that sounds right (laughs) um i think the other thing in that that comes through in jane eyre that's sort of less sort of ghostly is bertha who who's the mad wife in the attic and we learn that she is from the Caribbean. So she's a Creole woman, so she is um, has some, I guess, Afro-Caribbean ancestry. There's definitely, I mean, lots of people have kind of written essays about the, the racism implied there and the, that exotic women are unstable and a bit mm. mad and that Jane Eyre comparatively is this demure British white... Stiff upper lip. Yeah, mm. sort of more pure woman. Yeah, there's definitely something, I think, in Charlotte Bronte being you know of her time yeah equating the exotic and the unknown in terms of other ethnicities as Mm. being akin to mad people madness and dangerousness well i think there was certainly that sense of like even the whole history around barbaricness and barbarism this idea that less civilized countries from a western perspective would therefore be more associated with Mm. madness and animalistic behaviors and that kind of hypersexualization as well Somewhere you talked about Wide Sargasso Sea, is that? I, I mentioned Wide Sargasso Sea, which is by Jean Rees. It was written in 1966. And that was written as a kind of response to Jane Eyre as a book, um, obviously much later. But it's sort of taking the, the, the whole story, but telling it from Bertha's perspective as being a young woman taken from her culture and sort of pushed into this marriage with Mr. Rochester, who's a sort of unknown man who lives in a completely foreign country. And he is kind of often vacant from the home and she's sort of left to live in a new place, in a new country, all on her own. Um, And that she is driven to madness because of the way she's treated by Mr. Rochester and and other Mm. people. A kind of attempt to sort of explain like have some sympathy for Bertha and sort of say well why you know maybe it's reasonable that someone would have mental health issues if all of these things had happened to them yeah 
yeah, all this Victorian era, I think quite good for gothic literature. A lot of sort of gothic literature was getting written around that time. Yeah. Um, you've got famous ghost stories like um, The Christmas Carol by Charles yeah. Dickens. It was a time where people were quite into their ghosty Ooh. ghosty stories. Turn of the Screw as well, another Well, classic. speaking of the Turn of the Screw <laughs> and Christmas Eve ghost stories, shall I go into mine? That was, that was my yeah, segue. yeah, no go. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to cut you off and be like, yes, yeah, stop no, talking about Jane. It's a perfect segue. Guess what my next book is? Is it Turn of the Screw? It's the Turn of the Screw. <laughs> Which I think is such a sinister name for a book. So the Turn of the Screw is a Christmas Eve horror story. Now, I don't know if this is a British thing, this thing of you tell ghost stories on Christmas Eve, because I remember BBC dramas used to do it a lot. They'd show, there would always be ghost stories on Christmas Eve and obviously Christmas Carol is a Christmas Eve story James was actually American but he was also like an Anglophile living in the UK Mm. for a while so it's feasible that this is a British thing so The Turn of the Screw it was published in 1898 like many books at the time it was a serial and then it became a novel it follows oh speaking of governesses follows a governess hired to look after two children it's a girl and a boy the boy was recently expelled from his boarding school and there's kind of this dark mystery around why he was expelled but the governess grows very fond of the children and she starts to see apparitions of a man and a woman wandering around the house she learns that there were two former employees who died and she suspects that she's seeing the ghosts of these Mm-hmm. Uh, employees and she's very afraid that the ghosts will turn the children against her and it's become one of these it's become like a, a great example of unreliable narration it's like one of the masterpieces of having and not trusting the narrator because you're never actually sure if the ghosts exist or you you don't know if the governess is imagining it all and i think you know similar to the haunting of ill house it's kind of again good to remember in a first aid kit that your own sanity is your own biggest threat. So, and also maybe don't trust your eyes because they could be deceiving you. And it's funny because I think this concept is taken off in a few adaptations. The one I always think of is, is it called The Others with Nicole Kidman? Yeah, that's a great film. Yeah, and I think that's got a similar thing around unreliable narration. And that's, yeah, that's my second book. I really like The Turn of the Screw. I think it's a great scary story yeah proper classic one again it's sort of similar to like Jane Eyre the whole thing of women and governesses and I don't know just I think there's something about like repressed desires and yeah so like Bertha I mean there's I don't I don't think remember there's anything Being about the outsider as well yeah to be a theme. I think in the term of screw the governess the dead governess Yes. Is like, I think it's implied that she kills herself because she's pregnant. She's definitely like a fallen woman. Yeah. Um, I think she was having an affair with the with the man. Yeah. Yeah. So she's, you know, she's she's a terrible, sinful woman. Um, and I think that's interesting that that's kind of similar to Jane Eyre in that you've got like the, the bad woman and the good, pure woman. Yeah. And uh, yeah, in, I suppose in Henry James, it's like the pure woman is potentially being like corrupted by the evil spirit yeah. of the, the bad both, one. I guess in both stories, they're being terrorised by the bad yeah. woman. Yeah, yeah. How much of that comes from, obvi- obviously, there being certain perceptions of, of women and their roles in that time period. Mm. And that what's more scary than a sexually liberated woman? Nothing. Yeah. Nothing is the answer. Um, particularly if she's not from around here. Particularly, yeah. Apparently nothing, yeah. It's not just... The corrupting influence in the, in Turn the Screw is 
potentially going to yeah damage the children as well you've got to protect the mm. children from that terrible sinfulness i'm not going to spoil the ending but there is sort of ambiguity as to whether the governess becomes corrupted or not mm. or whether she's just kind of having to witness this strange goings on so i think it could be you know going back to the yellow wallpaper you could say it's a very literal metaphor of this other being mm. who is almost like your mirror your dark mirror version that could show what you'll become in Jane Eyre it's the wife in this it's a governess it's I don't know I mean I might, I might be getting deep into my <laughs> English literature essays but this is what I love about literature you can really go into these wild theories and yeah and kind of interpret what you want yeah there was something that I was gonna say about gothic literature that's gone out of my head maybe this is why you don't do two podcasts in a row because your brain gets I frazzled know, yeah <laughs> Um, I listened to another podcast recently where they were talking about the difference between horror and terror. Yes. And trying to explain the difference between horror and terror and horror being more sort of things that you see, gory things, um, you know. So think like movies like Thor where people's arms get chopped off or whatever and that inspires horror. And terror is something that's much more internal and terror is something that is it's almost like you're generating the thing so yeah mm. the strange noise you're terrified the psychology of, of it, yeah, yeah the psychology and i think i think maybe that's that's something that's quite um it's done quite well in these, these sorts of victorian scary books is that a lot of it is all could be in their heads do you think that for modern audiences we rely more on horror now we've got less of the terror yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of horror out there, like, isn't there? It's like yeah, because even if I think of some of my favourite mm. horror films, and I'm a massive horror fan in terms of films, and they are very explicitly ghosts. It's yeah. not, they're not really up for interpretation. There's mm. no, there's no sense of like you're witnessing. I suppose you've got kind of classics like The Shining, where it, yeah. I say that's much more of a terror. Kind of straddles the line because you are seeing literal ghosts I mean well you're not really scared of the ghosts though in the same way but I you know when I think of recent scary movies and I guess possibly because it's a visual medium Mm. a lot of them do rely on visual shocks you know like what's that one where like there's a someone like walking backwards on their oh I don't know yeah one of those exorcist type ones yeah some exorcist visions yeah but I genuinely if I do watch something that's a bit scary, the thing, the one I still find it, even when it's a visual thing like a film, it's definitely scarier when stuff is left to the imagination rather than mm. jump scares. Like well, I'm thinking of some of my, yeah, some of my favourite scary films, it's very much a demon is there going mm. to kill you and there's no ambiguity and everyone can see it. And one of the better ones, in my opinion, is It Follows. I don't know if you've seen that. Mm. And actually that's ironic because I did just say everyone can see it, but the, everyone cannot see it, but it is still physically there. And that's, this idea that a demon's just walking towards you all the time, like very slowly, and when yeah. it gets to you, it's going to kill you. So you can run away from it, but it's just going to keep walking towards you, and you might be able to outrun it for a week or a year or 10 years, but it's going to get to you. In that case, I think it plays a little bit of a terror idea because there is a little bit about it's meant to feel very dreamlike. You're not meant mm. to be able to place it at a time and place. Um, but it is also very literally a demon's there. It's not, I, I mean, The Shining's the best example I can think of where mm. it's the fear is around the psychology of it. Yeah. Um, as ever, we just end up going off on tangents. Um, try, try not to let your inner psyche take control. I think that is a real <laughs> takeaway from this kind of experience. What's your third book? So my third book is, well, it's not really a book, so it's a slight cheat. It's um, a short story, and it is a Sherlock Holmes story. Oh, yeah. And it's called The Vampire of Sussex. 
And I included this one because I thought sort of taking the Jane Eyre thing even further. So, you know, I'm sort of suggesting that maybe, yeah, all the things that go bump in the night, there might be a logical, if bizarre, reason for them. But with the Sherlock Holmes, it's, it's taking it a bit further and saying, well, actually, if you, you know, use your brain, you can probably work out what's causing all of your scary, scary events and then feel much better about life because it's not a ghost. So The Vampire of Sussex was a short Sherlock Holmes mystery. It's published in a paper. If you don't want to find it, it's like a sort of PDFs on the internet. So oh, great. it doesn't take very long to read. And I've not read any Sherlock Holmes. Ah, well, no. read this one because it's really short. Yeah, <laughs> I will. Uh, so yeah, in the story, you've got Sherlock Holmes, famous detective, and his colleague, Mr. Watson, Dr. Watson, I should say. And How dare you demote him, I know. <laughs> they're approached by a man who walked, he, he walked in on his wife with their baby son in her arms and blood dripping from her mouth. And he's like, oh my God, my wife is a vampire. And Sherlock Holmes thinks she probably isn't. And then he goes on to use his deductive powers of reasoning to prove that this isn't what happened. She's not a vampire. It's all very rational. And I won't spoil the end by telling you what happens. But I think, yeah, as I say, I, I'd include it in my kit as a kind of thing, to, as something to remind me that I can approach the situation logically. I can probably find a rational explanation for why it's all happening. I mean, that's, that's Sherlock Holmes' kind of bread and butter. Like, you can see, you know, once you eliminate the impossible. Yeah. No, yeah, once you eliminate the impossible, however, whatever remains, however improbable, must be Must true. be truth probably paraphrase that quite a bit but i love that little phrase yeah i think it just it just shows that ultimately there's there's probably going to be human hands behind your supposedly supernatural events and maybe Mm. there'll be so sorry just to put more is the baby dead oh no the baby is alive Mm. is the baby bleeding do you know what i need to read the story on yeah um no the baby is alive baby is unharmed no i correct myself the baby is hurt oh yeah but you know not dead so it's fine (laughs) Um, but I think the other thing that I found really interesting about this as after I dug a bit deeper into Arthur Conan Doyle who is a writer of the Sherlock Holmes stories is that obviously Sherlock Holmes is very he's famous for being rational and using logic and reasoning to work out why things are happening but yeah what I think is really interesting is that Arthur Conan Doyle himself was actually very into spirituality and he's very into the idea that you could communicate with the dead and I think that is that's kind of feels like a contradiction in that you could have this character that absolutely refuses to believe that so there's a quote in fact that I've made a note of from Sherlock Holmes mystery where he says yeah where he writes this agency stands flat-footed upon the ground and there it must remain the world is big enough for us no ghosts need apply I love the way Holmes talks he's great (laughs) yeah and then but we compare that to Arthur Conan Doyle in real life and yeah he's kind of into his spirituality and I read a bit deeper and apparently there is some suspicion that his his kind of belief in the ability for the dead to talk to us and to communicate the dead might have come out of a couple of things so one his son dying young and then losing close friends during the war during world war one and that that he kind of struggled to accept that these people in his life were actually dead or i mean they were dead but that they were actually gone forever and that perhaps he kind of wanted to hold on to this belief mm. that he could communicate with his son communicate with his friends so yeah it's i found weird, that kind of interesting I, I always find the opposite experience where once you lose someone close to you and you realize oh if ghosts exist i would have seen them by now mm. therefore the ghosts probably don't exist whereas you might have been open to it before 
Yeah, because you'd think, well, why wouldn't they? Yeah, if they could contact me completely, and and also because you wouldn't see it as something to be afraid of. Yeah, and but then maybe he did speak to his son through a seance. I have no idea. So yeah, he used to kind of host seances, and I th- I mean I think this was a very popular thing to do in this period of time. Any in general, so kind of late nineteenth, early twentieth century, gather to gather together in mm. Nepala and try and speak to the dead and i read somewhere else in this article that interest and fascination with ghost stories and spirituality might have been linked to the development of electricity and the development of the telephone yes yeah yeah and like so one thing that's thought was an interesting idea i don't know how true it is but so with the invention of the telephone you know it's kind of a completely revolutionary idea that you can suddenly talk to someone who is hundreds of miles away and that actually, if you suddenly have that after, you know, letters taking, maybe having a telegraph, I guess, but, you know, most people writing letters, it would take days to reach the recipient. You go to suddenly having this ability to talk to someone instantly. And hear and, their voice. And hear their voice. As they're saying it. Ooh. That maybe talking to the dead doesn't seem quite so unfeasible yeah. anymore. I can get on board with that. And then the other thing about the um, about electricity is that, it was just not very good initially so things would lights would flicker on and off all the time and Uh, that these would um you know it would kind of create this the atmosphere like the very atmosphere that people lived in was kind of constantly spooky and (laughs) creating you know like my elevated doors yeah exactly like flickering lights standard scary movie trope yeah but that's happening all the time because you've only just invented electricity and also that's like for those of us who are very familiar with electricity by now like you're just like oh bob's going out yeah it's not like oh a ghost is immediately unless you're into stranger things and i guess flashback to previous episode i think it'll be a yeah we talked episode. about the agatha christie wasn't agatha it? christie disappeared yeah. and we mentioned that yeah arthur conan doyle acd did a seance to see if he could find her and <laughs> couldn't <laughs> she was not dead <laughs> and um, also he's it sounds a bit insane and the last thing i'll add before i let you go on to your final one is that um in the vampire of sussex i should i i think i didn't mention but the lady the wife who is being accused of being a vampire is peruvian which i think uh. is you know just another example of exoticism and these beliefs that anyone who is a bit foreign um mm is you know dangerous or different or other and in the end actually it's proved that she's not dodgy but you know yeah i'm gonna find that pdf on the internet (laughs) and i'm gonna read it um what's what's your final book in your well you've basically introduced it for me it's dracula by bram stoker so it is of course the vampire story i don't think anybody listening has never heard the word dracula before in the context of a vampire but it was he was invented by bram stoker novel was published in 1897 dracula was told by via letters and diary entries and shipping logs and lots Mm -hmm. of different um kind of like multi what's the word multimedia yeah that's the word i see (laughs) so it opens in a first person diary entry a young solicitor called jonathan harker has gone over to transylvania to work in the house of a mysterious count count dracula and he starts to see and experience some really creepy things there and he kind of flees back to england and and it is very creepy like this is one of those books that you read and i felt genuinely scared reading it because the way that things are described is really horrifying but he, he flees back to England, and then later on we learn that something has washed up on shore in Whitby, which is where the rest of the novel is set. And there are rumours that there's something going around sucking people's blood around the town. 
Um, and a few people team up. You've got Jonathan, you've got his wife, Mina, you've got some various friends. They join forces with this man named Van Helsing, who's also become quite a famous figure in pop culture. And Van Helsing believes they've got a vampire and kind of ex- explains that concept to them. And it's the very traditional one where you have to kill them by putting a stake through their heart and mm-hmm. you can ward them off with garlic. And so they all team up to take him down. And the reason I put it in my first aid kit is that I really think it kind of gives life to this idea that you can team up and take down something. If you bring in an expert and you can all work hard, you can take down this supernatural threat that's uh, threatening you. And uh, as long as you just bring in an expert and be brave. And that's very useful in a haunted house. The one thing I wanted to mention, so I did more research on this over the kind of from the gap between Mm. the first episode and the the ghost episode and this one and i found this really mad article in time which basically implies that it was all real and that dracula is actually a real thing and that bram stoker was doing so there's i'll put the link in it bram stoker claimed that parts of dracula were real here's what we know about the story behind the novel and it kind of goes into this idea that bram stoker was doing research on a man called jonathan harker and his wife mina and there was all real and there was a real vampire going around and, and I thought that was quite a nice contrast to your Arthur Conan Doyle example, where it's like, this seems like a real vampire, but here's the logical explanation. Whereas this one, you've got, here's the fantastical story. Oh, by the way, it's all it's real. real. And he went to the Whitby Museum. He went around, he, I think he went to Romania. He found lots of records of like a blood-sucking creatures. And I just thought, how absolutely mad. Dracula could be a real thing. And it's funny because I think there is that kind of... I know vampires obviously have got very trendy in pop mm, fiction. And very and sexy. Very sexy. Anne Rice kind of, she wrote Interview with the Vampire and that kind of humanised them. And I think from there, it kind of became this thing of the vampire love interest. And I did know a few people who believed they were vampires kind of in that like teenage way where it's like oh it's fun to like suck each other's blood and it's kind of like Aww. weird you know like i don't know if you ever knew people who went through a kind of stage and i and i don't mean to say this to be offensive to real wiccans but it's like there was a lot of kind of a, a phase where lots of young people went through this like it was almost like trendy to pretend you were wiccan and yeah or yeah like pagan kind of religions and it, and it was a similar thing with the vampires people would be like oh, i'm a vampire because i'm really goth and I suck blood and and I, and I don't I can't help wondering if the real vampire is it's a just, similar sort of yeah. person who's like I'll just suck Emo. blood or yeah or if it's obviously not a real vampire but I just love the idea that Dracula could be a true story I'm going to check that this isn't published on April Fool's Day <laughs> yeah I, I think it's so it is really interesting um, that makeover yeah Make, makeover yeah, the kind of glow up of glow vampires, up of vampires yeah. from just being like genuinely scary to sexy mm. and like hot. But um, the thing as well is that so Dracula in the novel, like the way he attacks people is quite sexualized. Mm. I think they think of his like biting. He's always beautiful young women. Yeah, like, biting, biting their neck, neck, which is a bit like yeah. you know, getting your hickey, but going. Yeah, far. it's all that kind of like imagery of like oh no. So <laughs> you can see why you know the Twilight authors, people like that, just yeah, wrapped it up. But he himself in the novel is described as being quite an ugly old man. Mm. But in more recent adaptations, I noticed they've definitely kind of de-aged him and made him like, I know Jonathan Rhys-May has played him. Yeah. And they've, they've really kind of like sexed him up. And again, I think it comes back to our old theme, which pops up a lot with Victorian literature, is themes around sexual repression mm-hmm. and what the idea of a sexy bloodsucker might represent to a Victorian audience. Got some oh, got backing some music. Music. 
very the fun of break, living yeah. in London. Most of the time, there's a helicopter going over the house. So this is a nice break from always that. and yeah. Walthamstow as well. Oh, God, so it's at like two a.m. drives me mad. Anyway, forgotten what sexy I was. vampires, sexy but, vampires, but original. Dracula. There could have there could have been an original sexy vampire. <laughs> We just we just don't know. I'm gonna put. I'm gonna yeah. I'll tweet out this article because it is he, really strange. Where does the thing about vampires and bat? Does, is he bat like in Dracula? I think he can turn into a bat. Oh, okay. Is that where that comes from? I think so. Yeah. And I, th- I think there's something to do with his house in Transylvania mm. being somehow related to bats. The moral is: team up, have an expert. Similar to the haunting real house. Yeah. Have Yours is very much about keep logical. Yeah. And then also, if there is a real threat go and tackle it head on yeah which I like to believe I'd try and do but who knows who knows <laughs> one of my absolute favourite TV shows when I was younger was Buffy the Vampire Slayer of course so that's basically yeah. a, a handbook in yeah. visual form of how to deal with vampires that's your first aid kit TV yeah. show also lots of sexy vampires in that yes Angel oh yeah he was a vampire who was the other one Spike. Spike is he a vampire too he's a vampire too he's meant to be sexy but I never found him that sexy mm, yeah it was like, almost like a love triangle wasn't there Oh, I love no. that show. <laughs> I haven't seen that in so long. Um, I re-watched it recently. Yeah, I was like, I said to my husband, oh my God, it's amazing. Like, I can't believe you've never seen it. Let's watch it together. Because it was on Amazon, I think. Amazon Prime. Anyway, we started watching it. And it suddenly things like, don't, just don't, don't ever show anything meaningful to someone else. Oh no. Because when they are unimpressed, you'll be devastated. Yeah. Because it's like, I don't. I don't get it. And I, I do understand. But I thought like, it did hold up, no? Does it not? It doesn't. It doesn't. In the sense of, I think it held up for me because I had a lot of nostalgia about it. Yeah. But now watching it with, you know, TV has come so far. Yeah. Like script writing and production levels are just on TV shows now are, they're insane now. Yeah. Like they're the same budgets as movies. So actually when you, I don't know, like I I will always love Buffy, but some of the dialogue is a bit wooden and some of the acting is a bit ham. And I was a bit like, oh. And you're going, you're (laughs) looking at a, um, a kind of like, theme where it needs to be high budget to work like yeah the, like the thing I, I think it's a similar thing of like charmed and supernatural in these shows where magic's involved mm. you kind of need it to be good otherwise yeah. it's gonna look really bad like there were some demons i remember being really scary and then in that oh, re-watching no. it i was like that's like watching vintage scary. doctor who and you're like <laughs> oh no this is not scary at all but i do still love buffy and i again like um you know the the, the representations of women that you get when you're younger i think buffy's a pretty good that's one that's true yeah that's good not perfect but pretty good for yeah. its time but anyway going off on a tangent on Buffy the Vampire Slayer no well um, I think that's pretty much me I'm I'm happy I mean I feel like I've got my kit yeah I think between the two of us if we were both going and we both brought all these books but we have very different approaches to I'd be like let's go with the steak and you'd be like let's stay under the cover which is ironic because all of mine are mostly about like don't worry none of it's real but I'd be like I'm sure none of it's real, but just in case. You'd be like the one in the attic going crazy and I'd be yeah. out there <laughs> trying to take you down. I'd be setting the house on fire. Knocking over candles. <laughs> um, were any books you came up um, into research that you were like, oh, I need to read that? Like, well, I've never read Frankenstein's Monster, for example. Yeah, I've never read Frankenstein either. I, w- I now would like to read more about Dracula being possibly real. Yeah. I think that's, that has definitely piqued my curiosity. Mm. Frankenstein would be a good one, but I think I think that might come up in a future episode, but I don't know yeah, what episode, maybe. because it's it's quite an interesting psychological 
or philosophical, yeah. I guess, look at things. Whereas I think now it's kind of become a bit, it's kind of crossly become this thing mm. of like a green monster, whereas in reality it was a little bit. I yeah. remember that really weird Kenneth Branagh movie. That was really strange. So two of mine are written by women. I guess Sarah Waters, you know, that's 2009, so she's a very contemporary writer. But, you know, I feel like there are, there are lots of examples of women much longer yeah. ago writing like like the Brontes and Anne Radcliffe and was a, a famous yeah. gothic horror writer so women and you've got Susan the, Hill doing yeah, Woman in Black Susan Hill I actually I'd like to read a Susan Hill quote that I found in a um, very I think it's about 2015 there was suddenly this surge in horror books again and I wondered if there was like a reason for why horror fiction suddenly picked up mm. and Susan Hill well she talked a little bit about what we always said about genre writing and how yeah. people would kind of initially kind of like pass off genre writing mm. as being not that high level yeah a bit trashy but as time passes it becomes a lot more respected yeah and so susan hill she was she was speaking to the guardian about it and she said there has been a sea change in attitude towards genre writing literary novelists started turning their head to the crime novel writers such as hillary mantel changed our perception of the historical mm. novel the genres became not only acceptable, but writing to which people aspired, whereas they would not have done 20 years before. I took a lot of flack during, about dumbing down when I published Woman in Black, and I'm very pleased it has changed. There's never been any reason to be ashamed of writing genre fiction, but at last people realised that. Mm. And I thought, that's very nice. Yeah. And ghost stories should be respected because, as we say, they're so rich in theme and metaphor and mm. can become very interesting books and and are not just about jump scaring you but are about you know telling these kind of broad stories Mm. i feel like we've we've both come up with these sort of themes about like the the real scary stuff is what you can imagine yeah which is good because you can defeat your own imagination pretty easily Mm. so we'll just go in we'll be rational we'll be sensible we'll drink a lot yeah job done 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 (laughs) <laughs> so again I don't know what our next episode is going to be no I don't know but if you have any ideas yeah if you've got any theme suggestions <laughs> or two listeners um, yeah I mean two is in general <laughs> yes <laughs> hopefully we have given you some good suggestions for books you might read yes. if you're preparing to go to a haunted house but even if you're not these are all really interesting books and stories to kind of get your teeth into and maybe read when you've still got the lights on um, if you have liked today's podcast do tell your friends and family subscribe on your podcast provider and you can follow us on social media at first aid lit but until next time goodbye stay spooky (laughs) 